Um, today we will be in Luke 1, 5 through 25. So if you'd like to turn there real quick, Luke 5, or 1, 5 through 25. And if you'll stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Luke 1, 5 through 25. And it goes, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Adonijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no children. Because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense, and a whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right hand of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fell down upon him and fear fell upon him but the lord but the angel said to him do not be afraid zachariah for your prayer has been heard and your wife elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call him john and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a God prepared and Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of the Lord, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, and he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the inerrant, inspired word of the Lord, and it's profitable for our teaching and our correction. Will you bow your heads with me? Father God, thank you. First, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these people who gather every week to listen to your word, God. Um, I pray that today, as I... I ramble, God, that the words that are not from you fall short, God, but the words that are yours pierce like the dagger that they are. God, you are great. You're a wonderful father, and thank you for everything you do for us, God. In your heavenly son's name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I want you to think about the birth of your first child 
or holding your nephew or niece or maybe just a friend's baby and looking at them and staring at that squishy face and that body that's so rigid yet so floppy, <laughs> so, so strong and so powerful, but also so delicate, so fragile. And as you stared into those eyes, as you stared at that little head, you probably planned something. You imagined what they were going to be. For me, with Cato, I planned on him being a doctor or a lawyer and um, him like hitting every milestone months before he was supposed to. Like I'd planned on him walking when he was six months old. Um, that did not happen. Spoiler alert. But more than anything, I wanted him to be able to live a cush life, a happy life. Um, but we don't get to plan our children's futures, do we? Um, my son uh, loves cars and engines a lot more than he likes case law and the, the anatomy of a human heart. Um, and that's trivial, but we really don't get to choose what our, parent, or what our children are going to be able to accomplish or what they do with their lives. Uh, we can have impacts and influences on them, but as the, the prophet Jeremiah tells us, um, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. God is sovereign, and he knows not only the time of our birth and the time of our death, but he also knows every hair that's going to be on our head every day in between. Um, so today, um, <laughs> I, so my, my overarching thesis, my, my, my point, my big point that I'm driving to for this, this passage is Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, which was supposed to be the call to worship today, but my sixes and nines apparently look similar to me. So let me read Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13 for you. Um, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. While we, we walk through this this prophesying, this foretelling of John's birth, I want us to look at, or I want us to, to look at this passage and ask it three questions. One about time, one about um, preparing a way for the Lord, and one about shame. And we're going to look at those by looking at Zechariah, John, and Elizabeth. So, um, I think it's about time for me to actually get to the meat of my sermon. So let's talk about time. And my question for you is, are you trusting God's time? So look at, with me at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah. So sometimes um, our Bible can trick us a little bit. Um, and I don't mean that our Bible is completely true, but just the way that it's structured. Because Luke comes after Matthew and Mark. So in our minds, we think, okay, this is still the, the, the telling of Jesus. But we've already sat through 44 chapters of the New Testament by the time we get to Luke. So sometimes we can get, think like, okay, like, you know, 
Jesus already came because he already came in Mark and he already came in Matthew. But um, that's not the case. There's, there's, uh, there's 400 years previous to this point that Jesus had not sent a prophet to his people. And 400 years is really hard for me to grasp. Um, that's longer than the United States has been around. It's longer than the, the, the country that we love, that we feel like has been here forever, has existed. Um, it's also 12 generations have passed. Um, Rome's taken over. Um, maybe you guys have heard of the Maccabees, the Maccabean Revolt, the Maccabean Reign. Um, that has happened. The Maccabees got wiped out by Rome, and Herod has got put into their place. So the last rule of an Israelite reigning Israel was over. And it, it, it'll never be the case again until the 40s, whenever Israel became a sovereign country again. The 1940s, bear in mind. Um, so these people for 400 years had been living in a drought of God's word. They had not got any new revelation. And all they had it was just the promises that God had given them through the prophets, through the Pentateuch, through all of the Old Testament, which promised a lot, um, promised Jesus. But after these 400 years of nothing and mostly being under other people's reign, they, they had a different view of what this, this Messiah would be. They thought he was going to be this big, strong king who would come in, conquer everyone, kick everyone out, and reinstate Israel's rule. But that's a story for David to continue on. Um, let me get back to my stuff. But um, in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the last written prophecy that we have, God says something super interesting. He doesn't talk about judgment. He doesn't talk about anything but his unfaithful, or his unfaithful, his faithful love to his people. This special love and this promise that his covenant's going to keep. God never gave up on his people. They may have felt like it, but God never did. He was just waiting for the right time. So, as we continue on in verse 5, we see a microcosm of this faithful Israel um, in two real people who had a real struggle. And those two people are Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we find out a couple things that are interesting about them. First off, they are faithful to the Lord. They hold all of his, his commandments and they walk blamelessly in front of him. But, there's a but. There's always a but. They have no children. Hmm, tension. And why is that tension? Because, especially in this culture, if you don't have a kid, it's usually assumed that it's because you're a sinner. Um, we, can look back, or we can look at John 9. You don't have to turn there. But that's when Jesus' disciples ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was blind? It's not just a, 
in this culture, uh, because they didn't understand how science worked exactly, is assumed that if you sin, then you don't get blessings. And these people, Zachariah and Elizabeth, even though they walked blamelessly in front of the Lord, had no children. Hmm. So, is there any other people in scripture that had the same issue? Yes. There's Abraham and Sarah. There's also Jacob and Rebecca. And Sarah didn't have a child till she was 90. Um, and that was after 20 years of following Jesus, or following the Lord. So, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to that part in a moment. But um, also, these two people, their, their lineage is important. First off, which is really nifty, um, Elizabeth isn't just Elizabeth, but she's from the daughters of Aaron. Aaron, Moses' brother. Aaron, the priest. And this just shows God's unfailing faithful love because Aaron, that lineage has gone all the way to Elizabeth from the times of Moses till now or till then. And part of me, because I think there's no such thing as coincidence, especially in scripture, I feel like Aaron's line continued on just for this point so that a son of Aaron is prophesied or is going before Jesus. But that might just be my own craziness. <laughs> um, so verses 8 through 10, we see God's perfect sovereign control over life. First, it was Zachariah's division's time to be on duty. Now, this happened twice a year, every six months, that a do, or, um, one of the divisions would have to go to Jerusalem and, and perform the duties of the temple. Um, not only that, but also we see that, that Zechariah's lot was drawn. And this might seem kind of trivial, like, you know, just, okay, pick a stick. But two things. This only happened once in a person's life. You could only be chosen once to go into the temple to offer the incense. And a lot of people never even got that opportunity. So, it was at this point that Zechariah was able to, to serve at the temple. And it was his time to, to give the incense, to burn the incense. And then in, in verse 11, the angel is standing at the right side of the altar. He's standing in front of the altar, and he's not standing on top of the altar. He's standing to the right side of it, not someone in charge of it or someone over it, but someone subservient to it, which has a little bit of meaning because um, it's showing that the angel is just a messenger. Um, and when, when Zechariah saw him, Zechariah wasn't just, oh, 
It's an angel. Okay, cool. No, he was scared. <laughs> he, he was terrified, which is a good response to have whenever a messenger of the Lord comes to you. In case an angel ever shows up to you, it's a good thing to be scared, just FYI. Um, um, and also, like, of equal importance, um, this angel standing there, he's not rushing and trying to beat Zechariah into the altar or into to stand next to the altar of incense. He's standing there. That's because God already had this planned. God wasn't just peering over the clouds trying to watch this whole situation, this whole scenario happen, and, you know, just fingers crushed going, okay, Zachariah, come on, big money, big money, big money. No, God knew, and God had everything planned perfectly. God was sitting on his throne this whole time. He wasn't standing over it, hoping. God's timing is perfect. And what... What the angel tells Zechariah in verse 12 is so sweet. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call him John. How often do you pray? And it feels like it just hits the ceiling and bounces off. If it even makes it that far, maybe just right above your head. A lot of the time whenever I pray, it feels that way sometimes. But what does the angel tell Zechariah? Your prayers have been heard. Maybe you've prayed for emotional or physical healing, the salvation of a family member, the pain to go away, a situation to resolve. Or maybe like Zechariah and Elizabeth, you're praying for a child. And Psalm 56, 8 tells us that the Lord simply does not hear our prayer and it go in one ear and out the other, but he keeps a record of our sorrows, that he catches our tears in a bottle and they line his throne room. Your prayers are heard by our Savior, Christian brothers and sisters. Even if it feels like it doesn't, it is heard by him. God is a parent. We are his children. Um, we may be asking for a new Hot Wheel, like my son does. And we may go, or and God may go, it's not ready yet. Christmas is right around the corner. Just be patient. Or it may be, us asking for a red, white, or BB gun. And God knowing that we're going to shoot our eye out if we have it right now. Um, or because he is a good, loving God, he may be going, that's not safe for you. You think you may want that. You think you may want to run out in the middle of the street, but that's not safe for you. Now, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't pray for what you want. That's not what I'm saying. If you hear that, that's not what I'm saying. You should pray fervently for what you desire. But you should believe even more fervently that God is a God who has everything planned. 
that he knows your beginning and your end. And more importantly, he loves you. And he loves you enough to give you good gifts when they're needed. In Romans 8.28 even tells us this, that he works all things together for our good and his glory for those who believe in him. God's timing is different than our own. And whose are you trusting in? So we see from Zechariah that God is a God of time and that his timing is perfect. So what do we see from John? And our question with John is, are you preparing others for the Lord? So, (coughs) excuse me. Um, Our first question that we always have to ask the scripture is, you know, because context is king. So, we're talking about this John. Who is John? First, names are important, um, especially in Hebrew culture. Names are super important. Um, for example, Isaac, Abraham and Sarah's son, was given his name by God. John is also given his name by God. And John is such a cool name. Um, the Hebrew version of John, Jonathan, which is also Jonathan. Um, the Hebrews just didn't have J's, fun fact. Um, but Jonathan means God has given. And bear in mind, or Yahweh, excuse me, Yahweh has given. And bear in mind, Yahweh is God's personal name. Not Elohim or Adonai, but Yahweh. Yahweh, the covenant keeper, the faithful one. The one who is not because of how we are. And Elizabeth is advanced in age, as Zechariah keeps pointing out. Elizabeth is advanced in age. There's no questioning who's responsible for John's birth. It's impossible for her to get, get pregnant at this point. Yet, the angel comes and says she will. And it's, there's no way that she could apart from God. God has given. Um, John is also the greatest prophet the Old Testament can offer. Because even though John is in the New Testament, he's still an Old Testament prophet. Because he's still before Jesus. Um, And what's really cool is he's the personification of the Old Testament. Um, Look with me in verse 15. Like the prophets, he's charged by God. He's given orders by God. He is under the Nazarite vow. He can't have wine or strong drink. Just like Samson and Samuel. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, like Moses and like David. He is going to go before him, capital him, mind you, in the spirit and power of Elijah, one of the greatest prophets whom God used. And you may be thinking to yourself, okay, like that's cool. Like that's nifty. Like, okay, I can, I'll buy that. Or maybe you might have some pushback and we can talk about that later. But so what? 
So what? Look with me at verse 15, because that shows his purpose. That shows why he's this personification of the Old Testament. Why he's preparing, or why, oh, I just gave it away. Okay, we'll just go to it. <laughs> his, his purpose is to prepare or turn fathers' hearts to their sons and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Can either one of these two save somebody? Can turning someone's heart to their child or the, the wicked to righteousness, can either one of those save somebody? Now, there's nuance in that question, of course, but no. The only thing that can save you is the blood of Jesus Christ that he, he shed and he willingly gives to anyone who calls upon his name. That's the only way that we are saved. It's not by our acts. It's not by our deeds. It's not by what we know. So, before we get into the next part, I just want to take a moment, Christian. Um, check yourself. Are you acting to be saved or are you saved and acting as such? So, lastly, the last... The, the last part of verse 17. The angel says that John will make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Is John going to save people from their sins? No, he can't. We just talked about that. Those two things, like preparing or um, turning people to righteous thought or making them love their children, that's not going to save them. But that's not his plan. That's not his purpose. It's to prepare others for the Lord. He's making these people ready to meet their Savior. He's making these people ready to meet Jesus. Um, so FYI, you guys and me, we're not John the Baptist. That doesn't mean that we're off the hook, though. Sorry. Um, because Jesus in Matthew 28, 16 through 20 gives us the great commission. Go therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Jesus commanded us to do that. Now, the same question goes for that. Is baptizing somebody, is discipling them going to save them? No, it's not. But, that's what we're called to do. The, the, God is the one who is able to change a sinner's heart. God is the only one who's able to touch a heart and make them realize that they are sinful and wicked and need salvation. So, that thought should give you some relief. You should be able to... It's not on you. You can share your faith freely with anyone and if they, if, if they commit to Jesus and decide to be a follower, that's on God, not on you. Your purpose is to share. Your purpose is to disciple. Your purpose is to baptize. Not make people's hearts soft and bring them to, or um, save them. Um, So, you are called to make ready 
a people for God, not to save them. Um, so you don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be a sidewalk evangelist. Um, you don't have to stand in front of people and try to, to explain God's word. All you have to do is talk to people. Love on people. Think about our current culture. How weird is it for someone to care about another person for no alternative means? Just to love somebody. Think about how countercultural it is to, to invest in somebody. To just have somebody know that if something's happening in their life, they can come to you and you will listen to them and you will love them. In a world as dark as our world is, as sinful and wicked as our world is, this isn't just countercultural. This isn't just weird to people. This is appealing. This is the light on the hill. This is the light that you put on a stand and not under a bushel. So, <laughs> this, this world, it needs Jesus. And are you preparing others for the Lord? We're entering Christmas time. Um, people tend to be more appeal, or um, people tend to ask more questions about God in this time because it's prelevant. People, like, you know, even, even non Christians tend to enter churches more often during Christmas time just because that's what you do. Christmas, Christ, Mass. Um, so, are you preparing others for the Lord? So, this world is sinful. Um, this world causes shame. Not simply from our own sin, but also from others sinning against us. And this leads us to our third and final question for today. Are you holding on to your shame um, first, before we can talk about us, we have to talk about God. And the, in verse 18, Zechariah asks a question. How am I to know this? He then referenced both his wife's and his own advanced age. And is this wrong? Is this a wrong question to ask? Because Abraham asks a very similar question in Genesis 15. And Job, for the majority of Job, is questioning. Like, why God? Why did this happen to me? And in both cases, when God appeared, God did not explain the nuance of his reasoning and his cosmic knowledge of how everything works how Abraham was not yet ready to be the patriarch that the entire, entire faith is founded upon. That Job was being tested. And then afterwards, he was going to be blessed tenfold. What did God do? God showed who he was. In Genesis 17, God cut a covenant with Abraham, promising that the Messiah would come through his lineage, that Jesus would come through him. And Job, 
God showed how powerful he is, how strong he is, how majestic he is, and his love. And Gabriel, who finally says who he is in verse 19, does similar. He goes, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I stand in the presence of God. This angel who terrified Zechariah simply just stands in the presence of God. Which Gabriel, in and of himself, he's talked to Daniel. And he's one of the only two angels that are um, mentioned by name in scripture. And it's just, it's so fascinating that, like, as humans, we'd think, man, that's cool. Like, he's important then. Yeah, all he says is, I just stand in the presence of God. This angel that scared Zacharias so much, he just simply just stands in the presence of God. This God is so awe-inspiring, so awesome, so awe-filled that this, this angel is just, you know, I just stand in his presence. Zechariah, who in verse 6 is called righteous before the Lord, and yet still he had a hard time believing that this would work because he's old, because his wife's old. How is this possible? Like, she's unable to become pregnant anymore. Like, how is this possible? And Gabriel knew that he was having a hard time believing this. So before he could shame himself, by his unbelief, Gabriel made him mute. And I believe that's not a curse on Zechariah, but a blessing to him, that, that God would cause him to be muted so he wouldn't sin against him. And more importantly, um, personally, uh, is Elizabeth. Elizabeth has the fewest lines in this whole story dedicated to her. Yet, her influence in the story cannot be missed, nor should it be minimalized. First, in verse 24, we find out that God kept his promise. God didn't just say he was going to do something and then not do it. God kept his promise. And What's, what she did is, is super interesting. Because I would think, granted I'm not advanced in years yet, but if I was to become pregnant, if I was Elizabeth and I was to become pregnant, I'd be running up and down the street. Like, huzzah! Like, I finally am going to have a child. But she doesn't do this, does she? She hides herself for five months. And that's interesting. Maybe, now this is conjecture because we're, we're not told this in scripture, but I don't think this is her first pregnancy. I think she's hiding herself because she's lost pregnancies before and she's scared. Now, keep in mind, Zachariah is there, but he's mute. He can't talk. He can't tell Elizabeth, hey, just so you know, 
an angel came to me and he told me you're going to get pregnant and like this is all going to work right. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, but what does Elizabeth say? She doesn't say, oh man, I'm scared. Or, oh man, look at me, I'm pregnant. She goes, thus the Lord has done for me in the, day, in the days that he looked on me to take away my reproach, reproach among people. The first thing she does is point to God and praise God, not go, look at me. Because I can speak personally here because that's the only person that I know how they think. Um, it's really easy to ask God for things. And then once you get them, go, yes, look what I got. Instead of, oh, look, what God's blessed me with. Like, it's so easy to blame God, but not so easy to praise God for the blessings. So, now we come to you and me and our third question. Are you still holding on to your shame? Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And once they did that, they didn't have the cognitive realization that they have now trespassed God's perfect and righteous law, and thus they are now an enemy of God. They did not have that, that process. They went, I'm naked, and hid. They felt shame and hid. Abraham and Sarah... Jacob and Rebecca all struggled with fertility till God blessed them with it, till God took away that, that shame. Moses killed an Egyptian and felt so distraught by that when it was brought up by an Israelite that he fled for 40 years. Isaiah, upon entering the throne room of God, fell down and said, I am dead. I am a man of unclean lips that live in a, man of, or live in a people of unclean lips. Yet God commissioned him not to just be a prophet, but to be the prophet that wrote the most about the coming Messiah. David, King David, raped a lady and then killed her husband to cover it up. Yet God still covered that shame once he admitted to his wrongdoing and was still called a man after God's own heart. We have Peter, the rest of the disciples, Paul, countless martyrs in history. And even nowadays, we have believers who struggle with shame. We have addiction divorce, drunkenness, abuse, anger, manipulation, murder, adultery, covetousness, being absent, wicked desires, and so many more that cannot be said or are not known by anyone else. And Paul, in one of the sweetest verses of scripture, in 1 Corinthians 9, or 6, 9 through 11, tells us, that the righteous do not inherit the kingdom of God, which if it stopped there, that would be depressing for all of us. But it doesn't stop there. It says, as were some of you, but you have been washed clean. You've been sanctified. You've been justified by the name of the Lord Jesus 
brothers and sisters, you were not just covered by animal skin, but you were washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, your Savior. God does not hold any malice towards you. God does not, your sin, your shame has been covered by him. That, shame, or that, that sin that you feel shame for, if you are a Christian, has been washed clean. So you're able to let it go. This morning, we've asked three questions. Are you trusting in God's time? Are you preparing the way for the Lord? And are you holding on to your shame? As we enter into this Advent season, and as we enter Christmas, and remember Jesus' birth, <laughs> We cannot leave him in the cradle because he still has the, cro- the cross and the crown. And without either one of those two things, we would still be dead in our sin. Jesus came with a purpose and a mission to die for our sins and to take away that shame. And he did it not just for those who are good enough because none of us in ourselves are good enough. He did it for those who are unworthy, who are unclean, who are uncluth. Jesus did not just walk with the Pharisees. He went to the prostitutes. He went to the tax collectors. He went to those who people thought were dirty, gross, and disgusting and loved them. And he comes to you and me in our sin, in our shame, and he goes... I love you. I'll wash you clean. And honestly, beloved, I cannot think of a better way to celebrate this than with with the Lord's Supper. Because we're going to be thinking about God's birth, God's death, God's Jesus' birth, death, resurrection, his ascension, and his return where he's gonna make all things new, where everything will be perfect. And even if things don't happen in this life, they'll be perfect in the next. So let's bow our heads in prayer and then we'll move on to the communion. Father God, you are, God, you are powerful. You are loving, you're caring, you're all knowing. God, thank you for all that you are, Lord. Even when we're not spotless, you are, God. Even when we're not faithful, you are. Thank you, Lord. God, you, (laughs) you are the only way to salvation. You're the only way to peace. And Lord God, we thank you so much for offering it freely to anyone who wants to call upon you. And God, as we move into communion, I pray that you you prick our hearts, that we don't just look at it like a wafer and some juice, God, but we, we take its significance serious. God, we love you. In your heavenly son's name, amen. I forgot to mention at the beginning, but there's some Advent, a little Advent 
verses sheet out on the table out there if you'd like one. Um, I also have a little QR code to be able to get to a playlist of Christmas music. That's pretty cool. Um, Anyway, let's get to the benediction, um, which comes from 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I love you guys. Have a good week.